Welcome to Tattooed Freaks in Business Suits, recorded live at the DEMA convention in Orlando, Florida in September 2018. I am your host, Donna Shannon. As a professional career coach, I help people navigate the hiring needs to get the jobs they really love. In addition to working with job seekers one-on-one, I do have a book available. You can find How to Get a Job Without Going Crazy on Amazon. I have a very special guest today is Bonnie Lowe Crayman, and I'll let her introduce herself in just a moment, but you're definitely in for a treat. Uh, she has worked as a celebrity personal assistant and now teaches seminars uh, for executive personal assistants and personal assistants across the world, so we're really lucky to have her here today. So overall, our show's purpose is to explore and redefine the world of work, especially as Gen X and Millennials and those to come after seek positions of leadership that still allow them to be themselves. So every show we will explore a topic related to business or job searching, and of course, we're going to talk about tattoos. Our sponsor is the Personal Touch Career Services, Denver's top-rated career coaches. We focus on the practical tools for your job search, including resumes, LinkedIn profiles, job search coaching, and ongoing classes. You can check out our ridiculously long website, personaltouchcareerservices.com. Once again, that's personaltouchcareerservices.com, or you know, you can just Google it. Hi, Bonnie. <laughs> hey, Donna. I love the articulation of all those syllables. That was perfect. Well, it's called the website is too damn long. <laughs> <laughs> if only you'd known then what you know now. I know. There was even a marketing specialist that helped me come up with that. Anyways, sometimes the pros don't know best. Oh, whatever. But you know best, and you are a pro. So, Bonnie, why don't you just tell us a little bit more about you? Oh, my gosh. I am a Jersey girl. Uh, two years ago, uh, Robert and I moved to Florida though um, graduated from Rutgers University and you know I just fell into my work I was a theater and English major and my driver was that I wanted to be in show business I just needed to be in show business I started out being an actress for about it lasted for literally three months but it felt like like five minutes you know and and um, while acting wasn't for me I knew that I had to be involved with show business. So my first job out of college really was being in a theater box office, making $4.25 an hour and being thrilled to have the job because I got to interact with the actors and director and producers and, and that fed me that I was really good at that, at the orchestrating of the behind the scenes administration and I got to you know really flex those organizational muscles you know I became the go-to person um, even in our little box office operation and that felt great Um, so you know at each step of the way I followed instincts is what I did my my poor mother she worried that I wouldn't be able to make a living in show business but I felt sure that I would I didn't exactly know how um, but I did it <laughs> right and so you actually became what's known as a celebrity personal assistant mm-hmm. and you were working with Olympia Dukakis so what was it like to work with Olympia yeah you know I began working with Olympia 10 months before she became a household name. So my story is really about timing and luck and being in the right place at the right time. I went to work for Olympia at a time when 
no one knew who Olympia Dukakis was except people in the New York theater scene who knew that she was a very respected theater actress. And I respected that. I mean, I love theater. Theater's in my blood, um, being a theater and English major at college. Um, and so what we found, I was the PR and marketing director at her theater in northern New Jersey, and we she was one of the strongest women I'd ever worked with. And she is Greek. Everybody knows that. Um, one of the brightest women I've ever met. And I so enjoyed working with her. And in those first 10 months, we got to work with each other like you and I would work with each other, Donna. Mm -hmm. Like in relative anonymity, it would be like, all right, you know, so, you know, Bonnie, Olympia, how are we going to put bodies in these seats for the plays we're choosing? It, uh -huh. it wasn't that any, there weren't paparazzi hanging out, let's just say that. Uh -huh. And then 10 months in, she came to me because she got cast in Moonstruck. Mm -hmm. And mainly what she needed to tell me was that she was going away for a month to Canada to uh -huh. shoot that movie. And while she was gone, she needed someone she trusted to be kind of communication central while she was gone, mm -hmm. to be the conduit through which everybody on staff at the theater would communicate with her because she couldn't have 20 people calling her every day. Right, and uh, this is in the days before cell phones or... Yes, oh my gosh. Yeah. I know we're dating ourselves. We do remember life before cell phones and before computers and, and before we had fax machines even inside our houses. And for those of you listening, I know some of you do remember life before computers, but for those of you who don't, life did happen. Yeah, it she didn't did. even have a laptop. No, I didn't even have a laptop during this. It was just crazy. I had, you know, my idea of high tech, where maybe some of you, and maybe you know Donna, did you, ha I had an answering machine at home where there was a little device that when I was remote, I could hold it up to the phone and it would make a tone. Yep. And it would rewind the tape. Yep. So you could listen to your messages. Yeah, so it was oh. like, a, for those of you who don't know, it was a physical cassette, so yeah. it wasn't the same as calling into your voicemail and putting oh. in a tone, you know, punching in your code to get it. it yeah, was I mean, this different. speaks mm. to the learning curve, the tremendous learning curve that exists for assistants in the world today who you know remember life in the 90s but um, Olympia became famous very quickly mm -hmm. so, you know Moonstruck the buzz on Moonstruck was very fast that she made that movie in Canada and instantly there was publicity that she was going to get nominated and Norman Jewison who directed the film said if you I know you're going to get a nomination because this performance is that good, and I think you can win, but in order to win, my advice is to do every piece of publicity that comes along. Yeah. And that meant me, because I was doing publicity. Right. So that decision, so she said, all right, I trust Norman Jewison, and I think I, should, I would like to try to win. Um, that meant that we were now, she and I were connected 10 hours a day next to each other, you know, because I was coordinating all of these interviews. Mm -hmm. um, this fame changed all of our lives. Um, you know, Olympia followed that movie up with Steel Magnolias and then Mr. Holland's Opus. So she had one hit right after another, and that meant the phone never stopped ringing. That meant, you know, neither one of us dared to think how long this relationship would last. Mm -hmm. You know, she had a need, which is how it happens with celebrities and high-powered, any high-powered person. Mm -hmm. You know, because our given is we only get 24 hours in a day. 
Right, so that's it. So it's how many things are you trying to fit into that time period. Um, it was by instinct that I jumped in to, to, to serve this need that Olympia had. My instinct was, Donna, that my role was to do everything that, that Olympia didn't have to do, uh-huh. meaning Olympia got to do the things only Olympia could do. Right. So in my head, that meant only she could memorize her lines. Yeah. Only she could go for her costume fitting. Mm-hmm. Only she could go for her doctor's appointments. You know, that kind of thing. And so right. that was my criteria. Is that, and she was, my goodness, on the spectrum, I called her the queen of the delegators. You know, if you've got somebody who's a micromanager, she was the complete antithesis of that. Mm-hmm. Olympia gave me a very long runway and leeway. I opened every piece of mail. I could answer every phone call. I, you know, there were there were very few boundaries about the places I couldn't go. Right. So I was invited to the table to sit in on meetings. So very early on, like there's language that we're using now in 2018 that we were using then, but it was considered like really unusual. Things like I was her strategic business partner. Mm-hmm. You know, she wanted me to be at the table. She wanted, right. she welcomed my opinion. She didn't always do what I said. <laughs> and she didn't always agree with me, mm-hmm. but she wanted to know what I thought. She seemed to really, I think it's because she came from theater, which is so collaborative. She really knew that to, to hire people around you means more than just having them do the job description. It also means caring what they're thinking yeah. and, and really interested in knowing mm-hmm. what they're thinking. Because Olympia knew, for example, that people were saying things to me that they would never say to her. Oh, yeah. Right? Right. That happens in private, that happens just in the workplace. Mm-hmm. You know, people don't say things to the principal, the right. CEO, the head person, whatever. And she used that. You know, mm-hmm. she would then, when we would get alone, she'd say, all right, so what are they saying? Yeah. What? And so many executives don't really leverage their people in that kind of way. But right. it's so true. It was true then, mm-hmm. and it was it's true now. Yeah. So um, she's so bright, and, you know, we're still friends. I left seven years ago. But um, she is incredibly talented, insightful person who was my mentor. She was my teacher. She was my friend. And the best news of all is she still is all those things. So what do you think are some of like the really big challenges or triumphs during that time? Because you worked with her for a total of 25 years, right? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So you started when you were five. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, I can't believe these are big numbers. These are big, scary numbers. The big, one of the biggest challenges, of course, was technology. You know, that we went from doing everything manually to doing everything digitally, and she remained low-tech. So my learning curve was off the charts all the time. Plus, my background was in theater, so my learning curve was also about learning the vocabulary of television and film. So it was learning an industry. I mean, it was all show business, but I was learning the vocabulary of those industries in addition to playing catch up on technology and trying to keep up on the latest and greatest. Um, But then in addition, I wasn't only working with Olympia. 
I was working with her husband, the amazing Louis Zorich. Mm-hmm. I was working with her three children, you mm-hmm. know, who were teenagers at the time when I first started. And, um, and her mother, who passed at the age of 92. Um, and so I straddled the world of private service and executive assistant because I was doing a lot of contractual things and business things and then also caregiver because Mm -hmm. I also had involvement with her kids and her mom and you know the nursing home Mm -hmm. and you know Mm -hmm. so when these issues come up at DEMA or at you know in the world that I'm moving in it seems like my life my experience has touched one of these areas that that inevitably come up right and then you had your own life you have your own kids you have your own husband yeah oh my gosh yeah well that was part of the challenge i was married for 27 years and uh divorced so this business can be tough on relationships yeah um the fame part of my work with Olympia didn't happen until I was married for some years and so there was conflict over that without getting into the gory details Um, I have a wonderful son Adam who's now 30 and uh, however I don't know too many assistants I know actually I know two who have more than one child Mm. they have two kids most celebrity assistants either don't have any children or only have one because it is a profession that is so demanding yeah um and it rarely enables a person to employ a nanny on Mm -hmm. top of that yeah that makes perfect sense so i know you don't work with olympia anymore so when did you know it was time to leave Mm -hmm. i left in 2011 but truth be told i had started thinking about it a couple of years prior it, uh, my mom at, passed at the age of 89 uh-huh. in 2009. That had something to do with it. it there's something, something clicked then. But also, Donna, what happened was that my book, Be the Ultimate Assistant, had, had its first edition in 2004. And so by the time 2009 came around, and we had this beautiful thing called the Internet, mm-hmm. I had been in a part-time way doing teaching and speaking and um and and hearing from assistants all over the world i mean the internet enabled me to hear from personal assistants executive assistants in places like singapore and malaysia Mm -hmm. and you know i knew that my experience with olympia was absolutely relatable for assistants in new york and la What I totally didn't know until the internet and people started reading my book all over the world and Amazon, you know, to sell my book, was how this material for assistance related to to assistance in Ohio or, you know, Spain. And and there really wasn't even a language barrier because English is the international language. It was mind-blowing. So between the years of 2004 and 2009, I became clearer and clearer of what I thought was true was really true. Uh And that was that there was such a need that I felt the need for training and education as an assistant. And wow, was I hearing from assistants who were telling me exactly the same thing. So by the time 2009 came around, I thought, you know, 
I was I found myself Donna feeling much more excited about the training of assistants and my book and and like dreaming up a class that I wanted to teach versus working on one more movie yeah. working on one more television show and and I, I think I started waking up each day and and kind of dreading going you know I love Olympia love her to death didn't love the work didn't have the passion for the work that I used to and that's what makes all the difference. Yeah I, yeah, I recognized that. I had to recognize that in myself. Yeah, and then that really brings us into like the next phase of your career. Now, it's mm. not something new for you to be supportive to other, you know, PAs mm. and executive assistants and executive personal assistants. So, um, correct me if I'm wrong about this. So, you were the co-founder of New York Celebrity Assistants, and that was way back in '96. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was one of eight celebrity assistants I got this notice in the mail it was not my idea but I it, Morgan Freeman's assistant was the first president of the organization uh -huh. and she was pulling together a group of celebrity assistants in New York City my son was not seven at the time seven years old and I received this notice in the mail and it was like a huge light bulb went on in my head and you know to bring to this work can feel so lonely yeah. and so isolating. And when I saw that there was going to be a meeting at the Ritz-Carlton in New York City of celebrity assistants, there was nothing that was going to keep me away. Like my strongest instinct, I have to say there were certain decisions in my career, Donna, that, I, that were like beacons in the ethos or something, and this was one of them. I knew I had to be a part of this organization. I knew it. And I went, and within a few months, I was the president. And um, we started with eight people like Caroline Kennedy's assistant and Harry Belafonte's assistant and Marlo Thomas's. Uh, and within a year, we were probably at 24. And now, 22 years in, it's um, I think we're in the 170 neighborhood. Wow. Yeah, I'm yeah. really proud of that. I mean, not many organizations last that long, right? Right, right. And you know, for those listeners that we have that may not understand the whole thing with private service, there really is an entire world mm -hmm. that's going on mm -hmm. of people who support those, you know, high, high net, net worth, worth, ultra high net worth, celebrities, high yeah. profile persons. And sometimes there's that whole mystery of how do you break into it. And even if you're mm -hmm. in it, you feel like you're the only person in the world doing it. Oh my gosh. It is such a weird alien of a job. And mm -hmm. for so long, I felt like an alien because I was, you know, taking work home at nights and working on the weekends and, and coming in to do parties and sometimes sleeping at Olympia's house if there was going to be a snowstorm and we were flying somewhere. You know, like nobody I knew was working the way I was working, but in my head, it was all about filling a need. She had a need to do the work she was doing and she was running so fast going from one project to another it just was so obvious to me the need for a personal assistant mm -hmm. I knew she needed me there was no question about it I was not a luxury I was not a nice to have I was a had to have yeah like it's no wonder that publicists and managers get crazy with assistance because when things start falling through the cracks, that can get really expensive. Yeah, it does. <laughs> you know? Having just like, uh, no, I only have like part-time assistants and stuff like that. And having one, uh, well, I had one assistant that was really bad. And oh, dear. 
<laughs> yeah, it was painful. Oh. It was bad. You know, like you can't even imagine when mm. it's like I just need the little things done and it's not getting done. It's like okay, it cost my assistant you know eight eighteen bucks an hour to pay him. If I'm doing it, that's a hundred and twenty five dollars an hour, baby. Yeah. And the you I don't need to be doing data entry at a hundred and twenty five bucks an hour. Right. I mean, it's a great way to think about it. And and when we have these executives and principals who are trying to you know micromanage and do their own stuff, their own and correspondence, their, their time and their is worth thousands yes, an hour. Yes, it is not. The best use of their time but you know a ceo actually got honest with me one day i said why do you do that why are you using your time in that way and you know he actually said to me because their work is easier than mine oh the whole truth comes out it says to do an assistant's work is way easier, but an assistant isn't getting paid the money they're getting paid. Mm -hmm. So let the, I'm a big fan of allowing assistants to do the work that they're uniquely qualified to do. There's some amazing people doing this work. Um, I continue to be so impressed, but I'm so clear that training, training is making all the difference between the, the good ones and extraordinary assistants and, you know, mm -hmm. ongoing employment you know the whole workplace is shifting it's such an exciting time right now but i know you see that for yourself yeah, yeah. so why was it coming back into the um like the new york celebrity assistance and then there's another mm. one the association of celebrity personal assistance mm. um so what was your affiliation with that one yeah yeah mm. so the uh, los angeles group began first we began in 1996 they began in 1991 so they were the first celebrity assistant organization which makes sense they were out in hollywood and right. and uh, the profile of those assistants really tend to be very entertainment oriented and one of the folks two of the people involved in the los angeles group helped morgan freeman get new york up in running uh, but then once we started very quickly new york is you probably know this very different than los angeles yeah and a little bit of a different attitude yeah a very a different attitude the <laughs> attitude towards assistance is very different in new york and and the profile of our members were very different you know we had assistance to sports people and philanthropists and you know the flavor of of celebrity in new york is very different than in los angeles so and then there's also a group in london mm. now which started after New York. So in the world, there are three celebrity assistant groups, and um, I'm privileged to know these people. You know, frankly, you know, each assistant is so resourceful and bright in their own right, but put them together with some other assistants, holy cow, like yeah. the mind boggles. There's nobody they can't get to. Right. Like nobody. Right. Uh, I've, I'm just amazed when you think about the possibilities with yeah. that. Yeah, 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 it's very cool. And then really important, such an important resource. Mm -hmm. None of these organizations will live if they're not relevant, if but, they're not serving a purpose. And my goodness, with New York Celebrity Assistance, dues are only 150 a year. I wow. mean, it's like ridiculously low for that kind of access. Yeah. That access is worth everything. It's, it was the single most important resource I had in my work, and I'm, and I'm you know, i I've had my measure of success in large part because of them. Mm -hmm. well, that's great. Now, one thing I think it's important to note too, because sometimes I hear um, you know, people complaining and they're saying, well, I don't want to send my people to these 
uh, mm. things because they're just going to be telling horror stories and yeah. they're just there to bitch about me yep. and and it's all spreading gossip and rumors right. and lies and it's not absolutely not. There might be a little bit of venting about the job because it's finally getting around people who understand the yep. nature of the work and the confidentiality. But mm-hmm. it's really about sharing information in a network. Absolutely, it is. It's a resource um, that we definitely had A-list celebrities and B-list and C-list who did not permit their assistant to join us. Their loss, really. Mm -hmm. Um, There are many more celebrities who very quickly saw the value. Um, Olympia caught on immediately about the value. Like she knew that I was resourceful, but she, her mind really went to how it, that there was no danger of me, you know, talking out of school with her. That I valued. If you're a professional, you know that discretion and confidentiality is paramount. Um, so she she really understood the value of belonging to an organization like New York Celebrity Assistance and often said, you know, why don't you call your group? You know, why don't you call somebody in your group and see if that if we can find that. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. All right. So you mentioned, you know, your book is out there, Be the Ultimate Assistant. Mm. And so it was the second edition came out in 2009, which is mm. actually when you and I met. Yeah. And now you're doing workshops and trainings all over the world. So mm. tell me more about the classes you're doing. Well, you know, now the book is in its fifth edition. And My God, selling, I'm behind the times. And, selling, <laughs> and still selling well. I'm, you know, I'm always delighted when I run into assistants at conferences and they want me to sign their book and what I, what they, it's all like, it's got post-it notes all over it and it's all marked up and they tell me they keep it on their desk and, and I just love that. That's, that's mm-hmm. the, the best compliment ever. Um, the reason I wrote it was frankly, Donna, I don't want what I know to die with me, that <laughs> I worked really hard to get this information. And, and this is, these are not the kinds of things that are ever in a manual mm-hmm. or an employee handbook. They just don't exist. You know, I, uh, you know, the chapter on gender in the workplace, assistants are 95 to 98% female. And I've been, you know, making it my business to connect with experts and leaders and to understand what's going on in the global workplace regarding workplace bullying and the wage gap. You know, so many assistants are pitifully, severely underpaid. That really bothers me. The abuse, the humiliation, the the, the bullying that's going on, and you know, now we've got the Me Too and Times Up hashtags regarding sexual harassment, which is only one form of workplace bullying. These issues are slowing people down and stopping people dead in their tracks and chasing really good people away. Yeah. It's lose-lose. There's so much money being lost. So, you know, I, I dreamed up this workshop because I, this is the workshop, frankly, that I wished had existed when I was working with Olympia. Yeah. I envisioned myself in your seat. I know, and I'm so grateful you came to one of our classes. Um, that I imagined myself in your chair, and what is it that I would need to know? That's why it has to deal with soft skills of relationships and communication and solving different problem-solving techniques, and um, you know, lots and lots about communication, dealing yeah. with difficult people. 
And you know what's funny is, and mm. with my background in an HR, yeah, it's like I I advise my clients all the time on the resume. We have to put that stupid keyword in there: excellent communication skills, because HR keeps putting it on the job description. Yeah, even though the phrase now means nothing, but why do we keep putting it on there? Is do you know that is the number one requested thing from managers? Uh-huh, they go, I need somebody who can communicate. And what they specifically mean is somebody who knows how to write answer, write and answer emails, yeah. pick up the phone, talk to me, have mm-hmm. good grammar and writing skills and stuff like that. And they're trying to say that to HR, and HR goes, oh, that's excellent communication skills. So there's that stupid keyword coming right back into the job description, yeah. and now the computers are looking for that in the screening right. because they're, they're not intelligent enough to look for the context mm. of the way things are being written. And then, so we're hiring people and not looking at that in the resumes. And then they get in the job and the boss starts tearing out his or her hair again, going, this person can't respond to my damn emails. Well, that's why- Because the communication standards uh, are not there. And then these assistants who tend to be younger people have never been taught Mm -hmm. how to communicate with people. And it's the failure and the disconnect. And then, I mean, I had an assistant who failed and the problem was, the communication. I'm a big fan of working interviews to mm-hmm. bring somebody in for a half day uh, on another day and actually have them work, mm-hmm. actually have them do stuff, have them write, give me, you know, give them actual things that are being needed. I need mm-hmm. a response mm-hmm. to this. I'm going to dictate the note, you know, and you type it up and show it to me. Let me see how it's going to look. That way you can see spelling errors, grammar errors. Do they mm-hmm. have the ability to to think on their feet uh, to be able to communicate the idea of what, of what the principal is wanting to say? That is, you know, these assistants and private service people, they, they all say they want to make six figures, right? Mm-hmm. They all want to make big yeah. money, and I want them to make big money. Yeah. But if they're going to make big money, they have to bring the skills to the table. Yes, they, have they do. They have to bring the goods to the table. I knew that working with Olympia, I was representing her. So I, my writing had to represent her voice. It wouldn't. These weren't letters that I necessarily would write, but she was in charge. So mm-hmm. you know what? What was clear to me, and what I teach is that this is assistants are there to serve the principal's life. Certainly, there's a very big difference between demanding and difficult, which we all understand, and it's part of the gig, because you gotta know, if someone's an Academy Award winner, if someone is superior, if they're a celebrity, then they're excellent at something, right? Right. Whether they're a baseball player or whatever they are, they're also, chances are, a perfectionist in other areas of their lives. Mm -hmm. But there's a big difference between demanding and perfectionist and difficult versus demeaning and humiliating and um, abusive. Yes. There, for me, there is a big line between those things and the second half is not acceptable under any circumstances. Mm-hmm. That I train our BTUA students to not reward bad behavior, that it is not, it, it, there are things that we can do right from the first interview to set, a, to set the expectation to have a culture of respect. Because what I have seen in my career, which is pretty long now, if we have a culture of respect, everything becomes possible. The converse is also true. 
if there is disrespect, it's a, it's a formula for failure. It's mm-hmm. a setup for failure, and there's going to be not real blood, but it's, it's going to be messy, yeah. and it's going to be ugly, yeah. and it's unnecessary, I yeah. think. And one of the things, too, I mean, we're having uh, historic low unemployment in the United States right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm involved with several HR groups up in Colorado. Mm-hmm. And that discussion has been coming up of, like, how do we make a real culture? How do we really be inclusive in looking at the cost mm-hmm. of a negative culture and, you know, bullies in the workplace like um, you address? Because if... If you scare the good employees away, there's not a lineup of another hundred people dying for the job like there was, you know, back in the recession. Yeah. Plus, I think... That talent pool has flipped. And there is a reality among millennials, among younger assistants and younger PSPs, and that is that they aren't ready for a 50, 60, 70-hour work week. They're not sitting for it Mm -hmm. anymore. They want a work-life balance. They want to be able to go leave at 4 o'clock and go play their baseball game or whatever. And I'm not sure, Donna, they're wrong about that. Yeah, it's the work-life blend. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, let me leave at 4 so I can go to my kid's soccer game, but I'm going to, at home, I'm going to work from 8 to 10. Yeah. And that's okay. Is that I would say, I mean, one of the things I definitely wanted to talk to you about, too, was you know, how these roles of the PA or the executive PA has been evolving over the years. Yeah. And I'd say they always were heavy on the work-life blend, right? Actually, no. Really? Yeah. In my, in my travels mm-hmm. in these 14 countries where I've been, America is the envy of the world except in two topic areas. The first is that the rest of the world thinks we're crazy workaholics. I can see that. And we are. We absolutely are. We have assistants who tell me they haven't taken a vacation in three years. That We're not, from where I sit, we're not doing a great job at work-life balance. And then the second topic area where we get a lot of criticism as Americans is the... um, the parental leave policies that we uh, have yeah. here that in the United States—it it's totally bad. does. It's yeah. very bad, and I don't think I don't think they're wrong about that. Uh, I see that assistants are integral in taking a an, a proactive point of view on the issues of, say, backup for for vacations. That leaders are not paying attention to what is it going to take for an assistant to go on a vacation to act and to actually unplug because we have assistants if they finally do go on vacation they're checking emails all the time they're essentially working yeah they're at work but leaders aren't doing that leaders have the ability to unplug when they go on vacation because their assistant has their back yeah. their assistant is covering for them but leaders are not paying attention to this conversely HR is definitely not paying attention to this issue. So I'm putting it squarely back in the, in the laps of the assistants to take the bull by the horns and to come up with a plan, mm-hmm. to come up with a plan that makes sense for them to actually have a work-life blend that, that is reasonable. Um, I train assistants to be the CEO of you incorporated to treat your career as the businesses that it is. It's mm-hmm. a business, your business, 
And it's, yes, we should love our work. You know, we have assistants and PSPs who say, I love my work. And somehow that becomes justification for tolerating bad behavior and tolerating lower salaries. Like, no, you, yes. yes, you should love your work, but you also should be paid what you're worth. And you also should have the ability to take your family on vacation and to enjoy yourself. And by the way, have enough money to save for retirement. That is not unreasonable, but we're still in a place in 2018 where this is a lot of this is novelty mm-hmm. and, a, and still too new an idea. Um, but everywhere I go, I, I see that assistants are getting it. They understand that there's nobody advocating for them. Mm-hmm. And so they need to be their own advocate. Yeah. And they're, ju- they're bright enough. They can certainly do it, and they are doing it. And that's super exciting to watch. That is. That is. All right. So as we kind of wrap up some things, um, I, know, I know that you're saying you know, people are taking control of their careers and things like this. When it comes to managing conflict mm. and dealing with these workplace bullies, mm. what are some of the strategies that you have in dealing with that situation? Yeah. Well, the bad news is that this thing is a global epidemic. That's how I view it. It's a strong phrase. In part, it's due to the fact that leaders go to business school and they do not take classes. They don't even have classes in business school that remotely resemble a title called how to manage humans. So we have a world of leaders and managers out there who might be great lawyers, they might be great accountants, they might be great at what they do, but that does not equate with being a good manager of people. And so somehow leaders have gotten the message that the best way to get great work out of somebody is to intimidate them and to yell at them and humiliate them and to ostracize them. And, you know, it's a duh for us, but it's, it's causing a lot of pain and trauma in the workplace. Again, if assistants are going to, and staff are going to treat themselves as the CEO of you incorporated, you get to decide what you're going to take. And the ace in the hole for so many staff is that leaders don't want to lose you. You know, that I think a staff has much more leverage than they actually know that mm-hmm. they have. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I teach that, and I've studied this, there's a great book called Taming the Abrasive Manager, Dr. Laura Croshaw, she's a a colleague of mine, and I've made it my business to learn and educate myself about this issue because it is causing so much pain and suffering around the world. And honestly, Donna, there's not a conference I go to that assistants don't pretty quickly start talking about this subject. Mm -hmm. That it is the thing that's chasing people away. And when they choose to quit, they're going to work for the competition. Like it's not not Mm -hmm. helping the the principals or the CEOs. So it's very powerful to when someone says something that's offensive, to get them alone, look them straight in the eye and very calmly say, I need to talk to you about what just happened in the meeting. No one in my life talks to me like that. It is not productive for us to communicate in that way. And I need to talk with you about how we're going to communicate going forward. 
because that's not working. That's and a great way to put it. I mean, it's to the point. Mm -hmm. It's not blaming. Yep. It's setting a boundary. That's right. And it's firm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's got to be calm, clear, direct, specific. It isn't, it, we can't use phrases like, you always treat me bad, or you never, you, you, you know, never listen to me. You, right. Like little yeah. kids. This has to be professional and respectful. In our workplace, we're living in a time where rudeness has become very in vogue. And in part, I think that's due to social media and technology in that it's very easy to hit send when you don't have to look into somebody's eyes and to you know send what I term as a nasty gram or something like that. There in, on my website, there are plenty of resources for this kind of thing because part of the problem is that staff doesn't have the words to say. We need to, what I try to do is help my students know the words that you can actually say to a manager who's been so demeaning and humiliating. You know, something mm -hmm. like, you know, Joe, you might not realize that this happened, but you need to know I'm deeply offended by what you just said to me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we can cut them a break and try to let them off the hook a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, you might not know this, you know, some, some assistants use humor, um, you know, saying like, you didn't really just say that to me. Mm -hmm. You know, to, you know, the spectrum goes all the way to, you know, this is beginning to feel like a hostile work environment. I think we need to do something about this. Yeah. You know, I care about working here. I like working with you most of the time. To classic bully behavior, Donna, is that when a, first of all, when a bully is bullying one person, chances are they're bullying more than one person. Right. Secondly, when a bully is confronted directly and told something like, I am offended by what you just said, and you will not say that to me again, most bullies will hear it and move on to somebody else. Yeah. That's typical. Yeah. So we as leaders and as staff in the workplace, frankly, in the light of this whole Me Too, Time's Up movement, there's never been a better time for staff to bring these problematic issues to the attention of our leaders, mainly because it's front page news and because, you know, it also is front page news that there are, you know, $20 million settlements being brought yeah. and won. Mm -hmm. You know, this isn't, this used to be a subject that was so covered with shame and darkness and silence and discomfort. Um, I'm a big fan of saying, you know what, folks, we need to shine a light on this thing so that we can really tackle it and break the cycle. We need to break the silence and we need to break the cycle so that we can stop this already. I, I mean, you're a parent, I'm a parent. I don't, I don't want this to be the case for my children mm -hmm. or my grandkids or the staff coming up behind us like right. isn't it finally time there's it's, it seems to me that you know but before I'm done I feel very strongly and you can probably hear this I I feel like we need collectively as a profession to take a run at this workplace bullying issue and I also think we need to make it um, a better environment for women especially to be making the money that they deserve yep cool
Paul. All right, well, we've come to one of my favorite parts of the show where we get to talk about the tattoo today oh of the gosh. day. Yeah. But uh, Bonnie, you don't have a tattoo. I know. I didn't know if that was gonna going to disqualify me. <laughs> I can draw this. one on you right now. I got a pen. <laughs> um, you know, I'm. I don't have anything against tattoos. I I know that. Should I tell you what I think? You know about. I mean, are you, well, you sure. Wanna, and one of the things too that yeah, I have talked me. about on the show before mm. is there's something out there called the ink ceiling. I invented the term. Mm. So an ink ceiling is where you're allowed to only get so far in your career because of your tattoos are holding you back. And we're seeing it to be less and less of an issue, but in some industries it matters a heck of a lot more. Mm. And in private service, it tends to fall in some of the most um, conservative lines when it comes to body art, no matter where you are. I was even working on a gentleman's resume. He's a yacht captain, mm-hmm. and he's doing some transition to get into like an estate management role on the land. And prominent in the first bits of his contact information on his CV lists no tattoos. And it doesn't matter if like you're working for Slash, who has more tattoos than God or whoever. When it comes to like the people who are representing them, looking after their estate or managing their personal affairs or their mm. personal assistant, they tend to want to have a little bit more of a clean cut look. Is that what you're seeing as well? Or is it more inclusive? Is it gotten I more inclusive? I see that it's being very inclusive. I That's many good. many of my students have tattoos and they're you it's not there's not the taboo about it as it was say 10 years ago i i see that i mean for for myself it's obviously it's a very personal choice right Mm -hmm. and it's um a very individual thing and i shared with you donna that you know my way of declaring my individuality and to tattoo myself is with my writing you know if we're trying to leave something behind or have something that's permanent a permanent representation of me the way I choose to do it uh, is through my writing. Mm-hmm. And so my hope is that my book and my articles are going to live on beyond me. Um, so, you know, I, I, don't, I never asked you, you know, like what your personal feelings are about your own tattoos and like are you getting new ones and, you know, what your point of view is on it. Um, I well, think, I'll tell you yeah. this, you know, because I'm, I'm Gen X and uh, I'm pretty heavily tattooed. But it's only in uh, the past year that I finally, I have some tattoos on my lower legs and I finally got one on my lower leg, left leg. And I'm like, yep, I'm committed now because before they were all very easily covered up. Mm. Even though I have a lot, I have nine very large pieces. And Do people ask you about them? Uh, now they do. But remember, because I'm Gen X and when I first started getting my ink, I was very conscious of I want to express myself, but I'm going to get them in spots that can cover me up, mm. even because I don't want to sink my chances in business. Right. And I worked at a radio station. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, here's the thing. You know, we don't know what orientation or you know what his. Everybody comes to the table and gets to be an adult with their own history, their own mythology from their families. So I'm a fan of breaking down barriers between people and 
I can imagine that sometimes tattoos can be can put up a barrier. Yeah. They can put up a, a, a limitation between people and cause someone to make a judgment that may be unfair. Yeah. Because we are being judged by the way we look. Whether we, absolutely. Whether we don't want to admit that or not. Oh, my it's gosh. Like, yeah. Well, there's such a double standard between men and women. Oh, yeah. I see that everywhere I go, whether I'm tattooed or not. Mm-hmm. I know that I'm being judged more harshly. And I've just written an article about why how women behave with each other. And I'm kind of obsessed with that idea. Um it, like, do, do you want to hear a story about yeah. the, the worst bully I ever worked for in one of my tattoos? Talk. Okay, go ahead. So the, the bully I used to work for is actually pretty famous for being a bully. <laughs> As in it's a famous person. As in she thinks she's a famous person. Okay. Would I know who this person <laughs> yes, is? Yes, you would, okay. actually. All right. <laughs> and, um, so... Uh, she was a rather abrasive person and you know I worked at her organization for a couple of years and I had less trouble dealing with her bulliness because when I worked in in the entertainment field and like as a producer my specialty was I worked with difficult artists Mm. so you could yell and scream and curse and whatever at me I didn't care because I my my talent was as I pay attention what's the message underneath what you're saying Mm. it's like you may be throwing something but the real message is you're mad because we missed a spot meaning like a spot on air you know we blew a bit and it's like I could throw away all the incidentals of stuff flying around the room and concentrate on what's the communication underneath right so I have really thick skin when it came to working with bullies it was like my talent and uh, so I Did worked. Did you always have a thick skin? Yeah. From the time you were young? Well, I was horribly billed as a kid, and that's probably where I developed the uh, talent. Oh, okay. You know. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's, it's okay. I survived. But so I was working with this gal, and I have a really big tattoo on my arm. I'll show it to you. So it's like a gigantic bear paw, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's a cover up. So it's bl- the, all this blackness here is the, the tattoo that was underneath it. Mm. So I had this done. Uh, to commemorate my marriage with my second husband. And he's since passed away. Oh. So it, this tattoo means a lot. It's not the prettiest piece of art in the world. But it means something to you. It means all the world to me. And so I would wear shorter sleeves like this during the summer because it got real hot at the mansion. And, you know, she came up to me one day and she goes, Oh, I hate that tattoo. It's like a, just a gigantic bruise on your arm. You have to cover it whenever you're here. And it was, it hurt probably more than anything she ever said to me. Mm. And it, it was the way she said it. It was such a verbal attack. And she never bothered to ask what it meant or why it was there. Mm. It was this, I find the way you look unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And, and it hurt. And so what'd you do? How long did you last? Uh, I was still probably there another six months after that. Um, but prior to that comment, you were planning on staying longer? I probably would have. And the yeah. thing, what you were saying See, about the bullies, point. with bullies bullying more than one person, it's like, yeah, I could put up with it. But the real reason I left was I couldn't stand to watch her do it to anybody All else. Right. The data shows that the witnesses to bullying bear almost as much of the pain of it as the target themselves. Yeah. So mm-hmm. if I, that was, and I'm sorry that happened. Wow. Um, 
I've heard a version of that story a thousand times where mm-hmm. the you're unfairly judged on something you're it's an unreasonable comment it's a hurtful thing and she didn't even take the time to find out more about it if she delivered it in another way if you had an expectation mm-hmm. that when you come to work in our employ all tattoos will be covered yeah and then you have a choice right yeah well and that's and the thing i was already wearing suits every day it was just summer and i was wearing a shorter sleeve shirt uh shorter sleeve suit jacket and so if she had approached that in a different way you might have so she lost a great employee six months after she said that and i'm betting you that in those six months you really were not putting 100% into it? Yeah. Would that be right? Yeah. There were some other things yeah. going on too, but that yeah. was that was I mean, definitely a, a, an underlying current. There, I'm, in October, I'm speaking at my very first HR conference, and so I get an opportunity to be in a room of human resources professionals, and I'm really excited to have a conversation about what is going on in our workplace. How can we reduce and eliminate these problems that are chasing really good people away and in the process traumatizing them because there's a phenomenon called presenteeism you know we all know what absenteeism is you know Mm -hmm. when you call in sick yeah presenteeism is what happened in that six months donna i'm just that that you were in your chair oh you were there but you weren't really there like oh, you do, yeah. you're doing the bare minimum, right? Or searching for a job while I'm there right. at work. Yes. yes. <laughs> yes. You know, we only have so much brain space, head space, and happy, engaged employees who feel respected and valued and that they belong will, will lay in front of a truck for an employer. Yep. And those who feel disrespected as you did and unwitnessed and and embarrassed and humiliated and whatever those feelings are they they were the catalyst to have you looking for more work and and so the prince it's a lose-lose for the principal yeah a lose-lose and i'll bet she was surprised when you gave notice yes she was she was right yep so it there's a cluelessness we're we're really you know i wish business schools would handle this differently and it's beginning to change very slowly but again i'm putting this squarely in the laps of the assistants if managers and leaders are not getting the training on how to manage them then the assistants have to manage their leaders and managers um i am teaching them to see the gaps see the places that need improvement and understand that their leaders are lacking education and so they can be integral in solving some of these problems if they understand that there's a revolving door in marketing they can call that to their leaders attention um that's smart to do and the what's so gratifying donna is that this is happening that the assistants of the world are wrapping their heads around the idea that they we already know that they see and hear everything right right they see and hear everything and so now the time has come i'm teaching them the right way the respectful way the professional way to say what they see to put it in writing what they're seeing in order to solve the real problems the burning issues that are happening in our workplace that um is that are costing a lot of money and also eating people alive from the inside out you know like the trauma you will never forget that that yeah that that story right how many years ago did that happen ish 12 12 the 
11, you know, 11, when 20, I yeah. ask audiences all over the world, doesn't matter where I ask them, I say, so you've been bullied. Does the trauma of it last only the day it happens or the week it happens or the month it happens? And they scream back at me. They say forever. It lasts forever. It lasts for years. Mm -hmm. Is that okay? Like, yeah, I would, even after I left, I would get phone calls from her and I'd see that phone number pop up on my cell phone. And what phone. would happen to you? Oh my God, the anxiety level would increase, my heart would race, Your I would feel would... sick and it'd be like, oh my God, why, right. is this, why is she calling? I left a year ago. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. the price we're paying is so high. Mm -hmm. I see it, assistants come to me for help. They're eating too much. They're drinking too much. They're drugging too much. Some have landed in the hospital with nervous breakdowns. Mm -hmm. It's not worth it. And they're underpaid to, to boot. Yeah. It, there's, you know, we've been talking about issues. You know, I am, given all of this, I'm really optimistic about what's going on in the workplace. We definitely have room for improvement, though. And really... America, it, despite these issues, we are doing it much better than other countries are, believe it or not. I mean, the assistance in places like the Middle East and Africa and South America and Italy are horrendous, mm. just horrendous, mm. especially for women, the situation with women in those places. And it's even worse for women of color. So, you know, that's a whole other podcast, right. but we've got work to do. Um, the good news is that the assistants of the world, who I'm getting a hold of anyway, they're, they're wrapping their heads around this stuff and, and taking action. And it's working. It's working. HR wants to know. Their leaders want to know. And, um, and that's really cool. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time, Bonnie. So once again, my guest today has been Bonnie Lowe Craman. Bonnie, um, why don't you give us some of your contact information? How can yeah. people get in touch with you and find out about your classes? Yes, please. Please uh, go to betheultimateassistant.com or bonnielowcraman.com, uh, and you will find tons of resources on my website, including the workshops page. I mean, it's it's been exciting. This is our seventh year for Vicki Evans and myself. Vicki is just the best technology trainer out there um, she teaches three and a half hours of Microsoft Office at our workshop and um, it, we just love to have you involved we and we're selling out three four months ahead which is you know it's wonderful but it's also Donna speaking to how hungry the assistants of the world are for this information assistants come to us from all over the world mm -hmm. they travel they fly all night and it, they know they instinctively know that this training is necessary so i'd love to hear from you you know we we're in this thing together i can't do this alone we you know the, the quote i love is that the two most important days of your life are the day you're born and the day you find out why oh. so Mm -hmm. Yeah, let me help you with your why and let us do this better, faster, easier, and happier. Life is so short, isn't it, Donna? Yeah. Well, thank you again, Bonnie. So my producer keeps reminding me i got to tell people, follow us on all your podcast platforms. Yes, follow Donna. Give She's us awesome. A, give us a follow, give us a like, make us a comment, unless it's a bullying comment. Be nice. Just be nice. And we'll see you next time. Bye.